I'm going to refer you back to our illustration of last week. Uh, Job, like a lemon, has been squeezed. He's been hit hard by the hurricane, uh, hurricane force winds of affliction and trial. What has come out of him has not been lemon juice. That's what Satan had predicted that would come out of him. Not at all what Satan expected. Rather than curse God, rather than renounce his faith, Job has held fast to his confession and his faith in God. The stress that he is under is greater than any person on earth has ever suffered outside from Jesus Christ himself. And yet he has not been moved from his basic trust in the Almighty God. His flesh continues to reassert itself in spite of all the opposition that's been thrown against it. At times we'll hear Job speak of being in the midst of despair. It often clouds his voice and colors his voice as he speaks. As you saw last week, he will even come close to times, at times to uh, trusting his own righteousness to try and get himself through this, since he doesn't know where he stands as this trial goes on, as he is afflicted. And yet, in the face of all of it, Job still stands. Job still stands. Again, what Satan has predicted, what happened, has not yet happened. Job has maintained his integrity. He has not cursed God. He has not surrendered his faith. First uh, Corinthians chapter 10, verses 11, uh, verse, uh, 6 and 11 both tell us that things that happen in, the, happen in the Old Testament happen as examples and in samples to us. That is, we look to those events and those people in the Old Testament and learn from them how we should structure our behavior and our attitudes in every situation. So in that sense, Job is given to us as an example of how we ought to handle trials in our lives. Because, you see, Job is not some superhuman man who had extraordinary ability. We sometimes see these uh, Old Testament figures that way, like they're larger than life and live a different life than we do. Job is a regular guy living a life very similar to you and I, the life that we live right here. And when trials came into his life, he put into practice all those things that he had learned about his God throughout the course of his life. And the reason we're here this morning... And one of the reasons God gave us his book this morning was so we could prepare for that time when we'll also need to put into practice the principles found in this book. More than likely, there's coming a time in our lives and in the life of this church when these words are going to be more than just to us an academic study. There's coming a time in our lives, I'm almost sure, when the verses we memorize and the doctrines that we have learned will need to be more than just something we did because God told us to do it. It's possible there is coming a time when the words of this book and our faith in God and our knowledge of who God is is going to be all that will sustain us. There's people all over the world living like that right now, believers who are living under that kind of persecution and trial because of their faith. That doesn't exclude us also, folks. It could come here. I would be surprised if it didn't. There's going to be, and those words we have here this morning, this book we have, are going to be our lifeline and our thread of hope that will keep us going because life takes a turn and we won't be sure what else to do. And in fact, there will be nothing else to do except get into the word of God and remember what God told us. So Job is a picture. Job is a model. Job is an image of what we need to keep in our minds when trial comes. He's the pattern God has given to us to follow in the middle of affliction so we can handle ourselves in a way that will bring glory to God. And by the way, the hope is that might be true of you and I someday. Our children, our grandchildren, those in our church family may need a pattern to follow when they go through difficulty that God allows into their lives. And if we handle our trial correctly in a godly way, we can become that one who someone else may use as a pattern on how to handle their trial when it comes into their life. That may be one of the primary reasons God puts you through what he's putting you through. God wants to use you as an example to somebody else as to how to handle trial when it comes into their life. Now, last week in chapter 13, we saw Job as he probed to search the meaning of the things he was going through. 
We saw him make charges against his counselors as he confessed his faith in God. We saw he attempted to get answers from God. We even saw that he attempted to make a deal with God to get him to speak. But again, God has been silent through all of this. Job has expressed feelings of confusion as he expressed uh, the feeling cornered and consumed by what God is putting through. And now in chapter 14, Job continues his monologue as he continues to search for answers to the affliction that he's going through that somehow he might make sense of all this. This morning in chapter 14, we want to complete Job's probing of everything that he can think of as he seeks to find answers to the problems that surround him. So in chapter 14, we have Job's confession of life's futility. Job's confession of life's futility. Now, in reality, this chapter should also be read along with Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, I'm sure you're aware, gives us a complete picture of the utter sin and depravity of all mankind. That chapter, Romans chapter 3, goes through every part of every human and shows that every part of all of us has been completely contaminated by sin. And as Job considers the futility of life and the brevity of life, this becomes a focus of his thoughts. Look at verse 1 again, if you would. Job begins to complain about life's brevity and insignificance. He says, man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. He cometh forth like a flower and is cut down. He fleeth also as a shadow and continueth not. And dost thou open thine eyes upon such an one and bringest me into judgment with thee? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. Seeing his days are determined, the number of his months are with thee. Thou hast appointed his bounds that he cannot pass. Turn from him that he may rest till he shall accomplish as an hireling his day. Now, as you read through the Bible, what you're going to find in there over and over again, and I'm sure we don't like to hear it, but it's true, how brief our lives really are. We are told over and over again how brief life is. Hold your hand there in the book of Job, if you would, and go to Psalm 90. Go to Psalm 90. Uh, This is a common theme through the word of God because we somehow seem to think that we're going to be here forever. And God keeps reminding us life is brief and life is short. Psalm 90, look at verse 3. Psalm 90, verse 3. It says that thou turnest man to destruction and sayest, Return, ye children of men, for a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Thou carriest them away as with a flood. They are as a sleep. In the morning they are like grass which groweth up. In the morning it flourisheth and groweth up. In the evening it is cut down and withereth. Life is like grass. It grows and it cut down and it dies. And that's the repeated process throughout the history of mankind. James chapter 4 verse 14. What is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. It may seem like as though we have all kinds of time on earth, but I will tell you, and Steve can attest to this as well, as we get older, <laughs> we realize just how short life is and how quickly time passes. It seems as though I just began my... <laughs> I thought you'd know that, Steve. It seems like I just began my counseling career, and now here, here it is 46 years later, and that career has come to an end, how quickly time passes. And because lives are so short... And because they are so insignificant compared to the wonder and the vastness of God, Job asks a question in verse 3. He says, And dost thou open thine eyes upon such an one, and bringest me into judgment with thee? That's a question people throughout the centuries have asked. It's probably a question that you have asked from time to time. And the question really is this. Considering how immense God is, and how small and insignificant we are, why would God even bother with us? Why would he pay any attention whatsoever? 
David says the same thing in Psalm 8 and verse 4 where he says, What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? And although we will never understand it, God does think on us, and God does consider us. We are on his mind all the time, and his love and his concern for us never ends. And with that, look at verse 4, because Job then asks another question. He says, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Now, just look at that question, if you would. It says, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? That is a very interesting question. He is asking, is there anybody who can take something that is unclean and make something clean out of it? Now, I want to answer that question for you this morning, and I'm going to do that by letting you in on a little secret you may not know about. I have an autobiography of my life. And I'd like to read a little bit of, of it to you this morning. Now, I'm sure you're saying to yourself, I didn't realize he was even working on an autobiography of himself. Well, you may not have known that because technically this is not really something I've written. This was already written for me. I have just taken these words and made them personal because they describe my life. So in that sense, this is my autobiography. Now, before I read any of this to you, I'd like to say to you that I really would rather not read it to you. I'd really rather not you know anything about any of this because what I'm going to read to you really isn't very flattering. But in order to illustrate what Job is asking this morning, I'm going to sacrifice my pride and my good standing and read some of my, some of my autobiography to you this morning. So here it goes. My Life by Chuck Sabaka. Chuck Sabaka was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did his mother conceive him. He is not righteous. He does not understand. He does not seek after God. He has gone out of the way. He has together become unprofitable. His throat is an open sepulcher. With his tongue he has used deceit. The poison of asps is under his lips. His mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. His feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in his ways, and the way of peace he has not known. There is no fear of God before his eyes. He has sinned to come short of the glory of God. His heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. All his righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Now, I could go on, but if you don't mind, I've shamed myself enough. I'm going to stop right there. Now, I'm sure you are aware of what I read to you just a minute ago there are words actually taken right out of Scripture from the book of Psalms and Romans and Proverbs and Isaiah. But as I stand before you in my flesh today, like it or not, and I don't like it, those words describe me. That's who I am. In my flesh, that's me. Uh, and I'm sure after hearing all of that read to you, you're probably saying to yourself, why in the world did I get up on a Sunday morning and go to church to, to hear this guy talk? This guy's a mess. <laughs> and I don't know why you would, folks, because you're right. In my flesh, I am a mess. And the word that I could use to describe me is the word unclean. That's what I am. I am unclean. From the day that I was born, I was born unclean. As long as I am in this fleshly tabernacle, I will continue to be unclean. I am condemned to a life of uncleanness. Now, at my own risk, I'm going to read a little bit more of my autobiography to you. I'm thinking maybe I stopped too soon, and maybe I didn't give you the full picture. And so, here's a little bit more. You ready? But God commended his love toward Chuck Sabaka, in that while he was yet a sinner, Christ died for him. Chuck Sabaka has gone astray. He's turned to his own way. And the Lord hath laid upon Jesus Christ the iniquity of Chuck Sabaka. He hath made Jesus Christ who knew no sin to be sin for Chuck Sabaka, that Chuck Sabaka might be made righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. <laughs> so back to the original question. Who can take something unclean and make something clean out of it? Well, based on the autobiography I just read to you, God can. 
God can. He took something like me, totally depraved and completely unclean, and he made me clean. And if you're saved here this morning, that is your biography as well. You were unclean, just as unclean as I was, but Jesus Christ has made you clean. I've told you many times, I will never get over 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. I don't understand it. I can't explain it to you. I paraphrased that verse for you a few minutes ago. I don't get this verse. This verse says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I don't understand why in the world God would take my sin and place it on Jesus Christ. So as a result of that, I can stand clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ this morning. I don't get it. I don't get it. I will never get over that verse. As long as I live, that verse is going to send chills up and down my spine. And I know we are dignified Baptists here, and I know we keep all of our feelings to ourselves, but I wouldn't be upset at all if one of you stood up on your pew right now and said, Hallelujah! Glory to God! He's made me righteous of Jesus Christ. When you realize you were sinful and have been made just, you, you were born in sin. And you have been made just as righteous as Jesus Christ himself. Amen. Praise God. Amen. Praise God. Nobody can do that but Jesus Christ. Nobody can do that but God. Amen. Who can make something unclean and clean again? God can do it through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm a testimony of that this morning. You're a testimony of that this morning. And if you know Jesus Christ as Savior, uh, you are clean as Jesus Christ is clean. And if you have never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you need to take care of that this morning. Because he can do that for you just like he did that for each one of us. You can make that choice and be forever clean. Listen to me. Jesus Christ took all of your sin and all of your punishment and put that on the cross. And Jesus Christ took that for you. I wouldn't be put off at all if you stood up right now and said, praise God for what he did for me. God looks at you, folks, let me tell you something. You'll never get it. When God looks at you right now, if you're saved, when God looks at you right now, he doesn't see you. He sees Jesus Christ. You are in Jesus Christ. When he sees you, he can't see you. You know why, how I know I'm saved forever? Because when he doesn't look at me, he doesn't see me. He sees the Son of, his son of God, the son of God Amen. and his righteousness. I'll never get it. I'll probably spend the rest of eternity saying, Lord, why in the world would you do that? (laughs) And how in the world did you do that? But he did it. He did it. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. He'll do the same thing for you. So look at verse 5 and 6. Seeing his days are determined, the number of his months are with thee. Thou hast appointed his bounds that he cannot pass. Turn from him that he may rest till he shall accomplish as a hireling his day. He says, God, just leave me alone. Let me just check out. I'm done with this whole deal. Just leave me alone. But he also realized in the same time, God is so great, he will never be able to comprehend or understand God's plan for him. And so beginning in verse 7, Job makes comparisons with the trees. Comparisons with trees. Look at verse 7. He says, for there is hope of a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that the tender branch thereof will not cease. Though the root thereof wax old in the earth, and the stalk thereof die in the ground, yet through the scent of water it will bud and bring forth boughs like a plant. We've seen in chapter 8 also in the book of Job that people are often compared to trees in the Bible. These verses return to that thought. Again, we hear Job's frustration. Now, what he's talking about here, I know very clearly. I've got trees in the back of my property. 
And because they grow like crazy, every so often I cut those things down, kind of thin them out. And whenever I do that, whenever I cut one of those things down, ten more rise in its place. Because the roots of those trees are still in the ground, and when I cut that down, it just gives those roots strength, and all those trees come up from those roots. Now, that happens with almost any tree. There's always a chance that small sprouts will come when a tree is cut down because, because the roots are still there. But as Job thinks about his life on the earth, he feels like once a person is cut down by God, there is no hope of that person ever being restored again. That's how he feels. In the prophetical sense, the tree in Scripture is often a reference to Israel. And certainly Job's comments in that sense are true. Israel has been cut down many, many times, and yet God still continues to restore her and build her up again. Nebuchadnezzar and the Romans both cut her down, and yet just as a tree, uh, she blossomed again. In Romans chapter 11, Paul warns the Roman church not to assume that God has done with Israel, that she'll never return to her former glory. He tells them in Romans chapter 11, verses 16 through 26, that there's going to come a future day when Israel will be restored back to where, the, where it was in God's favor again. God is not finished with Israel and never will be. And just as we look at Job's restoration here at the end of the book, so also there's going to come a day when God will shine his blessings down on the nation of Israel. And we see that in God's, that God is, in, rather in, what we see in that is God's faithfulness to his promises. Uh, we've talked about this on Thursday nights in our study of the book of Abraham, the study of the life of Abraham. God made a promise to Israel way back in Genesis chapter 12. And although Israel has wandered many times, although they continue to wander today, although they have faced many trials, although they're facing trials even as we speak, and although the worst trial for them is yet to come in the great tribulation, God will never turn his back on them. God always fulfills his promises. Any promise you find in that book that applies to you, God will fulfill it. The great thing about God, one of the greatest things about God, is God is faithful to his word. We may not be able to trust anything that anybody else says in this life. We can always trust the promises of God. His dealings with Job illustrate that to us. His dealings with Israel illustrate that to us as well. Now, beginning in verse 10 and going down through verse 17, Job comments on the nature of death. Now, Job is exploring every possible avenue here. Look at verse 10. But man dieth and wasteth away. Yea, man giveth up the ghost, and where is he? Job asks an interesting question here. He's asking, when a person dies, what happens to them? When a person gives up the ghost, where do they go? What, what happens to that person? Now look at verse 12. It says, so man lieth down and riseth not. Till the heavens be no more, they shall not awake, nor be raised out of their sleep. Now, that sheds some light at it, on it, but look at verse 11 first. He says, as the waters fall from the sea, from the sea, as the waters, I'm sorry, let me say it again, as the waters fail from the sea, and the flood decayeth and dryeth up. I believe that verse 11 is one of the many references we find in the book of Job uh, to Noah's flood. And Job's comments here just show us how much despair he is in. He feels as though there's no more hope for him than there was for those thousands of people who were destroyed by Noah's flood. Job is losing all hope for any kind of relief from the trial that he's in. He sees himself as doomed, as doomed as those folks were who participated in that flood. So it's no wonder Job is contemplating death. But I want to go back to his question in verse 10 again. He asks, when a person gives up the ghost, what happens to them? Or said another way, when a person's soul die, when a person dies rather, where does their soul go? Now what I want to do for the next few moments is do a little Bible study for you. So if you're a Bible student, hopefully you'll enjoy this. Let's just go through the Word of God in a little deeper fashion. The Bible tells us in Luke chapter 16 
that all those who trusted God in the Old Testament from Abraham until Jesus Christ went to a place called Abraham's bosom, which is also called paradise in other places in Scripture. So when those folks died, if they knew God from Abraham until Jesus Christ, uh, they went to this place called Abraham's bosom. In the same way, all those who died from Abraham to Jesus Christ uh, and who did not trust God went to a place called hell. So we had Abraham's bosom and we had hell in that period of time. When Jesus Christ died and was buried, he went to Abraham's bosom. He gathered up all those Old Testament saints who were there and took them to heaven with him. Now, after the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches us that any person who dies without trusting Jesus Christ as their Savior goes to hell. And every person who dies who has trusted Jesus Christ as Savior goes immediately to be in heaven with him. Now, what happened to those folks who died before Abraham? What happened to those folks who died before Abraham died? Because, you see, there was no Abraham's bosom. Abraham hadn't died yet. So all those folks in the time of Adam until the time of Abraham, where did those folks go? Well, let's go a little deeper. Look at verse 12 again. Now look at what it says. So man lieth down and riseth not till the heavens be no more. They shall not awake nor be raised out of their sleep. He's talking here about people who are in the grave and will not come out of that grave until the heavens be no more. So he's talking about those folks from the context uh, from verse 11, those folks who died during the flood. And if Job's ideas are correct, and he has been pretty much correct up to this point, What it seems like is that those folks who died before Abraham were treated differently at death than those who died after Abraham. I'm not going to take you there this morning. You know the verses, I'm sure. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. John describes what happens when souls appear before God at the great white throne. This appearance is basically the sentencing of lost people because the saved people are already in heaven with God. So uh, saved people's destiny is uh, settled at the cross. So at this time, John sees death and hell give up the dead that are in them. All the folks contained in those two places are presented to God and are judged according to whether or not their names are found in the book of life. Now, that would seem pointless to check, see if their names are there, if they're all condemned. If every person appearing there is condemned, why check the books? So it seems like there might be a chance that some of those folks uh, at death could actually be written in the book of life. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, I am speculating, uh, so this is just things to kind of think about and consider. I'm not saying this is necessarily absolutely true. I don't want to present a possibility to you. It is possible that the saints who died from Adam until Abraham actually remained in the grave, in death, until the day of their appearance at the great white throne. At that day, death gives them up, and if they were faithful to God, their names are found in the book, and they are permitted to enter heaven. Again, we are speculating. It gives us reason to study these things even further. But there's a point I want to make to you. Usually, every false doctrine you find starts with a true doctrine. Every doctrine out there that is false started with some beginning of truth. Uh, But people get a hold of that truth and twist it or interpret it or misinterpret it, and the result is heresy. There are cults, I'm sure you are aware, that teach the doctrine of soul sleep. They teach that everybody who dies lies in the grave until the last resurrection. Now, we know from reading the New Testament that is a, totally an error. Uh, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8, We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Praise God, every person you know that died in Jesus Christ is with him right now. Immediately they go to heaven uh, to be with Jesus Christ when they die. A believer's soul leaves the body and goes immediately to be with the Lord. 
But the doctrine of soul sleep may have a basis of truth, not for us, obviously, but for those who died before Abraham. It is possible that certain people stay in the grave until the last judgment, specifically those folks who died before Abraham. Those are the only ones that it would apply to. And certainly it doesn't apply to anybody who has trusted Jesus Christ as Savior in this day. But I want to take you back again to look at the context where he says, uh, verse 12, man lieth down and riseth not till the heavens be no more. That's after the, that's at the great white throne. That's when the heavens are no more after that period of time. So it's very possible there are those folks who are waiting for that time and will at that time gain entrance to heaven or rather be taken to hell because of what they did with trusting God and placing faith in him. Now, only a possibility. Maybe something you can study further on your own. Maybe something you totally disagree with. Either way, no problem at all. Just want to lay it out there for you who are Bible students, something to work on for the next few hundred years. All right, verse 13. <clears throat> Job gives consideration of things to come. He says in verse 13, Oh, that thou wouldst hide me in the grave, that thou wouldst keep me secret until thy wrath be past, and thou wouldst appoint me a set time and remember me. Job is crying the same cry that every person during the time of the tribulation will cry. Job is crying for a place to hide until God's wrath is ended. It's the same cry that will come from the mouths of those who experienced God's wrath during the time of the tribulation. Revelation chapter 6 verse 15. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks fall on us and hide us from the faith of him that sitteth on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb of God. Amen. What a horrible, horrible time. Every person on that on this planet, we crying out, please cover us with the rocks and the mountains. Have them fall on us. We don't want to face God's wrath. We'll have the rocks fall on us instead. No hiding place. No earthly refuge as God's judgment falls on those who rejected him. He asks another question in verse 14. He says, if a man die, shall he live again? And as quickly as he asks that question, he answers it. All the days of my appointed time will I wait till my change come. Job believed in the coming resurrection. We've seen that in previous messages. And Job believes when that happens, he'll be changed. He won't be trapped in his sinful flesh anymore that plagues him. It's the same doctrine that Paul presented in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 51. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Some of you will rejoice in this more than others. There's a new body waiting for you. <laughs> Some of you say, praise God, there's a new body coming. <laughs> Every person in this place, if you know Jesus Christ has saved you, you got a new body coming. He's got a body prepared for you. It's going to be changed when he calls you. You're going to get that new body. And what Paul says is this, uh, we sh in Romans chapter 8, verse 21, he says, we shall be delivered, I love this, we shall be, del be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the child of God. Amen. You know where I'm in right now, folks? I'm in bondage. I'm trapped in this flesh. And this flesh loves to sin. Now, my spirit doesn't want to sin, and my soul doesn't want to sin, but this body wants to sin. And so there's this constant battle going on between my soul and my flesh as to who's going to be in charge and who's going to make the decision. This old fleshly body right now limits what I want to do because of some limitations that it has. But if, since I know Jesus Christ as my Savior, someday I'm going to get a body that's going to allow me to do whatever I want to do. And it's always going to be the right thing to do. 
Can you imagine being in a body that no matter what you think, no matter what step you take, no matter what action you perform, it's always going to be the right thing to do. You're going to get a body like that someday. Everything you think, everything you do, the right thing. There's a change coming for those who know Jesus Christ. Look at verse 15. Thou shalt call, and I will answer thee. Thou wilt have a desire to the work of thy hands. Now, this is back dating me a bit. I realize that back in the day when you didn't have a phone in your pocket, if you had an important call coming, what you had to do is hang around the house or hang around the office because you had to wait for that call. And you didn't want to miss the call. And so you stayed by the phone waiting for that call to come. You know what I'm doing today, folks? I'm waiting for a call. (laughs) I'm just hanging around waiting for a call. Because there's a call coming someday. And I'm just waiting for it to happen. If you are saved here today, you're walking on this earth and you're waiting for a call. There's a consistent theme in the word of God. And that theme is God's going to call his saints. Enoch walked with God and God called him. Moses served God faithfully, and God called him. Abraham walked by faith, and God called him. And however it happens, and whenever it happens, there is coming a day when we'll no longer walk this earth as God calls us to the place that he's prepared for us. Now, we don't know the time we're going to go, uh, but the call will come as it has for many of our loved ones who have gone on before us. And when that call comes, we'll take our flight from heaven, uh, to heaven rather, and we'll look back at all the filth and the sin of this world, and we'll look back and laugh at all of it and cast it all aside and live forever with Jesus Christ. Amen. Can I ask you a question? Are you ready for the call? Are you ready for the call? If you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior, you're not ready for the call. If he calls, you won't answer. Uh, if there's something between your soul and the Savior this morning, believer, you're not ready for the call. If your life is not what it ought to be, you're not ready for the call. You need to get ready for the call because it could come at any moment. And when it comes, there's no looking back and there's no fixing things that you need to fix. It's all done at that point. It's going to be too late once the call comes. Look at verse 15 again. Thou shalt call and I will answer thee. Thou wilt have a desire to the work of thine hands. For now thou numberest my steps, dost thou not watch over my sin. My transgression is sealed up in a bag, and thou sowest up mine iniquity. Job was aware that no matter how far away God seems to be, he is watching Job's every step. Uh, When you are in trial, folks, God may seem far away, but ground yourself in the truth that God has his eyes on you all the time. No matter what you are going through, he is watching and caring for you and nothing will ever happen to you except as he allows it to happen. And it always is for your good and for his glory and to accomplish whatever purpose he has for you. Now, from verse 18 until the end of the chapter, Job draws some conclusions about the finality of death, some conclusions about the finality of death. And Job brings us back to a familiar picture, that of a lost person in hell. Look at verse 18. He says, and surely the mountains falling, uh, the mountains fall, I'm doing it again, and surely the mountain falling cometh to naught, and the rock is removed out of his place. Job is thinking no farther than the boils on his flesh and the brokenness of his soul as he speaks these words, but his words go far beyond his personal hell. Look at verse 19. The waters wear away the, wear the stones. Thou washest away the things which grow out of the dust of the earth, and thou destroyest the hope of man. Look at the last words there, folks. Thou destroyest the hope of man. Job's referring to the erosion of his own soul. But then he speaks of those who have no hope. And listen, the truly the ones who have no hope are those who die without Jesus Christ. They have no hope. 
as long as a person is living on this earth, they have hope that they'll turn to the Savior. But once they are in hell, there is no more hope. The decision has been made. And people live there forever with the consequences of that decision. Verse 20. Thou prevailest forever against him, and he passeth. Thou changest his countenance and sendest him away. It's going to be a shock someday. I watch these folks on TV, these folks, these entertainers, the athletes and so forth. I watch them. They laugh at God. They smirk at God. They laugh at the Bible. They ridicule those who know the Lord. One millisecond in the presence of the Almighty is going to wipe that smirk from their faces. (laughs) When they realize it was all true and they are doomed forever in the lake of fire because they refuse to listen to what God had to say. Verse 21. His sons come to honor and he knoweth it not. And they are brought low, but he perceiveth it not of them. There are those who are so focused on the things of this life. They're focused on helping their children get a good start. They're focused on make, helping their children make sure they have the best of everything. And in doing that, they miss that, which is the most important thing to do. Now, I want to say parental love is a great thing. Providing for our children is noble and necessary. I appreciate all my parents did for me. We tried to do the same for our children. Getting kids off to a good start is a noble and necessary thing to do. But nothing should get in the way of our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And there are those who've made their children's lives, their focus, so much so they've missed preparing for that, which is truly important. And children and parents go to hell every day because they have focused on this life instead of focusing on that life, which is to come. And they lose it all as a result. All that effort, gone. No worth whatsoever. Verse 22. But his flesh upon him shall have pain. And his soul within him shall mourn. If you know any lost people this morning, here's what they have to look forward to. Pain and torture for all of eternity. That's what they have to look forward to. The experience of being in hell just for a moment will bring everything into perspective. Sadly, it'll be much too late. I'm fascinated by the account that you read in Luke chapter 16 of the rich man in hell. What I find fascinating about that story is a change of perspective. (laughs) What was important to him down here is suddenly not important to him when he's in that place. All perspective has changed. Suddenly, he's concerned about spiritual things. You know, the biggest believers in the world are those who are in hell right now. (laughs) They know the entire story. Too late. Way too late. That rich man in hell is concerned about others. He's concerned about spiritual things. And overshadowing all that is his knowledge that it is too late, that his fate has been sealed, that there's nothing at all he can do about any of it. Folks, listen to me. And I'm talking to myself this morning. We need to be impressed with the reality of hell. Somehow, someway, we need to be impressed with the reality of hell. We need to be impressed with the fact that our cares are, are, are nothing. We need to realize that nothing is so important or so necessary as keeping that one out of hell that we may know who's going to that place. Amen. Our job as believers in Jesus Christ is to stand at that crossroad and direct them to the right way, away from that place. That's our job. That's what we are called to do. We, as children of God, have a rock to stand on. No matter what we face, that rock is Jesus Christ. We, as the believers, need to ground ourselves firmly in that foundation so the affairs of this life affect us less. You know what Satan's going to do? He's going to take that trial and use it somehow to change your thinking and get your eyes off the fact there's a lost world around you dying without Jesus Christ. He's going to get you so consumed with that trial of yours, that concern of yours, you're going to miss the fact that person next to you, that neighbor, that friend, is dying without Christ. Because I'm so concerned about this thing I'm going through. He's good at it. 
We've talked many, many times. Satan is the master of distraction. He'll get your eyes off that which is important and get your eyes on something less important. And in the process, souls go to hell every day without Jesus Christ. All around us. And we're concerned about our stuff, concerned about our things. We've planted ourselves in the foundation of knowing that God is in charge of our lives. We have nothing at all to concern ourselves with. And from that place of security, we reach out to others who are heading to that awful place and show them there's only one sure place to stand, and that is the rock, Jesus Christ. Folks, the focus and goal of our lives. Why are you here this morning? Why does God still have you in this place, on this earth? Why are you here? The goal of our lives is to point people away from hell and point them to the Savior. That's it. That's it. If you want to know why you're here this morning, why has God left you here? Why are you going through whatever it is you're going through? You are going through this life right now to point people away from hell and point them instead to the Savior. They need to know. And we need to tell them. And if we don't tell them, who will? Who will? Folks are dying. People you know. I met a fellow on Friday. We were at a store and we met him, a fellow we used to know many, many years ago. He was home with his wife and she was complaining about some pain. And he thought maybe it was just indigestion or whatever and he wasn't sure, quite sure she was having trouble breathing and so forth. So she said, I'm going to take a little nap. When I wake up, let's call the doctor. So they lay down together. They went to sleep. He woke up, nudged and said, you want to go see the doctor now? She never woke up. Now she was saved. Praise God she was saved. But it happened just like that. Just like that. And you may know somebody who doesn't know Jesus Christ as Savior, and they can lay down and go. Yeah. Tell them. Tell them. Tell them. You say, I'm embarrassed. Don't be embarrassed. Just tell them. They won't like what I have to say. Don't worry about that. Just tell them. Call them today on the phone. Text them and say, look, you need to know Jesus Christ as Savior. I want to tell you one time what Jesus Christ can do for you. Amen. They're dying, folks. Need to tell them of the Savior. Amen. Let's pray.